Hey everybody, welcome back to Ask a Catholic Therapist. I'm your host, Dr. Matt Bruninger. And uh, this week, we're going to talk about um, chemical imbalance theory. Uh, there was a question in uh, on the YouTube channel about chemical imbalance. And I think as I was scrolling some of the, the questions, and, and some of you mailed in great questions, um, again, if you have a question, please don't hesitate to reach out at askacatholictherapist at gmail.com. Some of you guys had great questions, but a lot of them were about the intersection of faith and psychology and um, thinking specifically about mental health issues as spiritual issues and to what extent are um, mental health issues able to be prayed away and this sort of thing. I think before we can begin to address those in a, a coherent way, we have to sort of talk about this idea that's that's really commonly held about mental illness and mental health being a chemical imbalance. And then we have to talk about how we maybe uh, the predominant way that psychiatrists and psychologists think about this. So let's talk a little bit about the chemical imbalance hypothesis. So this hypothesis came predominantly out of this in the 60s. And um, sometimes you'll hear it referred to as the catecholamine hypothesis or the monoamine hypothesis, the biogenic amine hypothesis. But the gist was this. Um, they were looking at depressed patients and they wanted to find out whether neurotransmitters played a role. And neurotransmitters are the, the chemical messengers uh, of the brain. It's how brain cells communicate with each other. They wanted to find out whether neurotransmitters played a role in mental illness. So what they did was they took depressed patients and non-depressed patients. And they looked at uh, metabolites. So once a neurotransmitter has been used, once it, it's sort of been sufficiently used, it gets discarded. It gets sort of chewed up or metabolized and, and discarded. And um, it gets broken down. That's another way of saying it. The neurotransmitter gets broken down and discarded. And that broken down or metabolized uh, neurotransmitter is actually able to be found in your cerebrospinal fluid. And so if you want to measure how much of a neurotransmitter is present in somebody's brain, you can look at the metabolites or the byproduct of that neurotransmitter. And so if you see lots of metabolites or lots of byproduct, then you have high levels of the neurotransmitter. If you see low levels of those metabolites, then it suggests that there's not a significant amount of that neurotransmitter present. If there was, you'd be seeing um, more of the, the sort of chewed up or discarded uh, you know, remnants of it. So what did they do? They took depressed patients and non-depressed patients. And what they found was that depressed patients had significantly lower levels of serotonin metabolites than non-depressed patients. And so this was exciting because um, it indicated that serotonin plays a significant role potentially in depression and, and clinical depression, major depressive disorder. Um, the problem is, and, and the, the problem is, this is sort of a complex topic. And so what happened was, as psychiatrists and psychologists were trying to explain this, you know, to a predominantly lay audience, they used, unfortunately, some analogies and some, some images um, that are easily understood, but also misleading. So this is where the chemical imbalance language came from, um, to describe you know, what they were trying to say or what, what most folks were trying to say early on was that 
obviously there is um, a role that these neurotransmitters play and that the reduction in this neurotransmitter is related to depression in some way. But remember, correlation is not causation. Just because we see lower levels of serotonin metabolites doesn't mean that is the primary or predominant cause of depression. Um, psychiatry has been, you know, since the mid-70s, has been um, talking about something called the biopsychosocial model. And we'll talk about that toward the end of the video. But most psychiatrists, most psychologists were not um, speaking about a chemical imbalance, um, at least in a, in a serious way, not the way we tend to think about it. They might have been using it sort of as a loose visual or analogy, um, but they didn't mean that they're sort of buckets in the head. And so long as we you know, get the right amount of serotonin in one bucket, we're fine. Um, if you have a psychiatrist who thinks about it in those terms, you should find a new psychiatrist um, or psychologist. The truth is, um, what these studies showed us was important. Serotonin, dopamine, um, these neurotransmitters play a role. But they, they, it, it's, it's sort of wrong-headed to think about mood disorders, depression, uh, mental health issues, anxiety, PTSD, these things as just we need more levels of certain things in the brain. And so if we just get the right drug to give us more levels, we'll be fine. Um, okay. It's harmful, I think, when we think about it solely in those terms, because um, then the only solution is a medication, right? Um, what's the benefit of thinking about it in those terms? Why, why do we, I think we continue to think about it in those terms? I think we tend to think about it in those terms because the benefit of it and what it did that was good was it destigmatized mental illness and mental health issues. That is, um, by recognizing that there really is a biological dimension to this, by recognizing that the body's levels of neurotransmitters, um, depressed patients have less of this neurotransmitter, seeing that biological reality um, made people less likely to point to people with mental illness and view them as moral failings. Um, we're less likely to view them as, as character defective or um, as having done something wrong, right? It's easy sort of to look at people who are depressed or anxious or have PTSD and, to, and, and sort of suspect that they've done something wrong. They've, they failed somewhere, they're, they're a moral failure, they're, it's a characterological issue what this finding showed us and what this language does is it shows no 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 there's there's something biological happening here it isn't just the person not trying hard enough it isn't just a weak will right it's not just a matter of um, you know, just think more positively right it's there's something biological happening here and so what that does is it destigmatizes mental illness and, and that was a good thing that is a good thing but i think we can destigmatize de mental illness without talking about it in terms that actually have other unhelpful or harmful consequences. And I think the, the, the chemical imbalance theory so biologicalizes the topic that we think that medication is the only thing that works. And this isn't true, it's simply not true. What's fascinating, and, and I'm gonna give you some, some counter evidence to viewing mental health issues as merely biological merely chemical imbalance. What's fascinating is studies that compare 
good psychotherapy, right? And we'll have to talk about what that is at some point. But studies that compare good psychotherapy to medication, time and time again, show that they're equally effective in treating disorders. You know, depression, anxiety, PTSD, panic attacks, medication and good therapy are equally effective. And actually, one of the benefits of psych psychotherapy is that it has a lower relapse rate. So you're more likely to relapse into the disorder after taking medication, after stopping medication, than you are after stopping therapy. The effects of therapy are longer lasting than medication. Um, now, in many cases, medication and therapy together is the most effective approach with um, a patient being able to wean off of the medication under the guidance and directive of a good psychi a psychiatrist over time. The two together are most effective, but when comparing them head to head, they're equally effective, which suggests that um, obviously it's not just about buckets that you need to fill up with more serotonin, right? Um, the other interesting fact is, or, or finding I should say, the other interesting finding is that um, usually these medications tend to take four to six weeks to work. Why is that? When you take a, a SSRI, a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, almost immediately levels of serotonin in the brain are boosted almost immediately so why doesn't the person feel better immediately why does it take four to six weeks for the medication to work well it's because that boost in serotonin is causing other effects it's causing what we might think of as downstream effects it leads to a cascade of other things happening that ultimately result in a mood boost but if just boosting serotonin was all it took the person should feel better almost immediately because that happens almost immediately when you take an SSRI. So obviously the boost in serotonin is an important step, but it's a step in a larger process that we actually don't understand. We, we're in, in the nascent stage, the infancy of understanding how these medications work, what regions of the brain they affect, and how they ultimately cause a mood boost. But the serotonin chain seems to be an intermediate effect or one effect in a cascade of effects that ultimately results in mood boost. Um, so chemical imbalance is the wrong way to think about it, but what it does show us is there's a biological dimension to this. So how should we begin to think about this? Two things I want to introduce you to. Um, I think about these as sort of nested theories. There's a general theory and a more specific theory. Let's talk about the more general theory. We're going to call it, this is called the diathesis stress model. In the diathesis stress model, you've got a diathesis, which is a big fancy Greek term for a um, predisposition or a vulnerability or a susceptibility. And so in this model, you have to have a, you have to have a, a predisposition. And then if you have an adequate predisposition or susceptibility, a stressor will come in and activate that predisposition. And so the bigger the disposition, the less stress you need to activate it. The smaller the disposition you have, the more of a stressor you need to activate it. Let's think of an analogy. So an analogy might be, imagine a virus, and this virus acts on particular cells in your body, or it acts on a particular protein on a cell membrane. Uh, if you have none of those cells or none of those proteins on the cell membranes, then that virus can't get you sick. You have no disposition or vulnerability to the virus because you don't have any of those cells. Now imagine you had a few of those cells or a few of those proteins on the cell membrane. If you had a few of those cells, 
having exposure to a little bit of virus, still might not get sick. You have a little bit of virus and very little risk, very little predisposition. With so few of those cells in your body, you would need a large amount of virus to find and attack those cells, right? Now, imagine you had a lot of those cells in your body. You would only need a few virus cells because you have such a plethora proliferation of those cells in your body you need very few virus cells to get sick because there's so many targets this is an analogy for the diaphysis stress model in this model we sort of think about uh, you know a dimension dimensionally you're you're imagine a tube right and you have um, on one end vulnerability the other end stressor and the more of that tube that's filled up with vulnerability the less you need to, to fill up, to, to spill over, right? The less stressor you need to spill over. The more of that tube that's, uh, I'm sorry, the less of that tube that's filled up with, with a predisposition, the more of the tube would need to be filled up with a stressor um, in order to sort of spill over, in order to activate it. And so what are what's our diaphysis? We tend to think about our diaphysis, our vulnerabilities as biological predispositions, biological vulnerabilities. What are those? Look, some of us are born with more or less of certain neurotransmitters related to mood. Some of us naturally have more serotonin, more dopamine in our bodies. Some of us have less. Those are risk factors or, or vulnerabilities we have. Uh, some of us have uh, more robust functioning or less robust functioning um, endocrine systems. The systems responsible for um, uh, hormone release, the release of certain hormones. There's something called the HPA axis, the hypothalamic pituitary uh, adrenal axis. And it's responsible for um, uh, the release of certain hormones. Some of us have, have HPA axes that are you know, functioning really well. Some of, us, some of us have HPA axes that sort of underperform. This is just our biological inheritance. It's just what we're given. And that disposes us or it makes us vulnerable to certain stressors that can activate those predispositions. Um, and so I think that's a nice model in helping us think about sort of generally how mental illness arises. You have to have some vulnerability to it. And then the more vulnerable you are, the less of a stressor you need, the less vulnerable you are, the more of a stressor you need. Okay. Don't want to beat that horse dead. I want to talk now about something called the biopsychosocial model. And, you know, this model came out in the, the mid 70s, like 1974, 1975. And it's, you know, in the early 2000s, uh, since 2003 or so, it's been the predominant way that we think about mental illness um, and mental health issues arising. And I think that this is a sort of specification of the diaphysis stress model. So what does this model posit? You might imagine in the biopsychosocial model, three circles, three spheres, and they're distinct spheres, but they overlap in the middle, right? like a Venn diagram. And those three distinct spheres are the biological dimension, the psychological dimension, and the social dimension. And where they overlap in the middle, we have mental health issues and mental illness. Right? Where they overlap in the middle, we have mental illness. But each of these three areas contribute to the expression or emergence of a mental health issue or a mental illness. So. What's in the biological dimension? Here in the bi biological dimension, we have um, genetic 
vulnerabilities, genetic predispositions. Um, we've got uh, more or less serotonin. This is like our diathesis, more or less serotonin or dopamine in the brain. Um, some people have more receptors for serotonin or dopamine, right? There's more places for it to bind, which means um, if you have enough of it in your body, uh, you know, you, you're less likely to have low mood. So we have more or less receptors, receptor sites. Some people have, um, uh, you know, more volume, greater, they're born with more volume or more robust um, regions of the brain associated with emotion regulation. Um, uh, some people have, right, uh, greater, you know, I mentioned the HPA axis, more robust HPA functioning or less robust HPA functioning. This is our biological inheritance. And so the biopsychosocial model recognizes this. Um, you might have been born with sort of less serotonin, right? Just on average, less dopamine, fewer binding sites, etc. But that's not the whole picture for the biopsychosocial model. Your next dimension is the psychological dimension. In, in the psychological dimension, we have things like our temperament, our personality profile, our self-esteem, our thoughts and beliefs. Um, our thoughts about ourselves, our thoughts about others, our thoughts about the world. So I want you to imagine now that, let's say you have a, um, a decently high um, biological disposition toward depression. But you've got really great self-esteem. You've got a temperament that um, tends not to be easily, you tend not to be easily um, bothered by new and novel things. You tend not to have a high, like, fear response. Um, you're really good with emotion regulation. Um, and, and so I should mention this about temperament real quick. Temperament actually overlaps really strongly with biology. We tend to think about temperament as a psychological factor that is highly biologically driven. Your temperament tends to be um, sort of given to you biologically, whereas personality is shaped pretty highly by environment. Not completely, but, but strongly. Temperament, we see temperament emerge really early in children. Um, and it's pretty fixed by about the age of three, but you see a child's temperament emerging much earlier. There's the classical like, sort of way of thinking about it, sanguine, choleric, uh, phlegmatic, or melancholic. But there's also sort of modern ways of thinking about it that have to do with um, how reactive you are and how much you're able to engage in emotion regulation. Uh, but this tends to be biologically driven and it overlaps. So, so here we have a psychological element of our psychological dimension overlapping with our biological dimension. But let's say you have a temperament that's, um, you're not highly reactive to new and novel things. You're, you have, um, you're able to pay attention, right? You're high in, in your capacity to attend to things. You have high emotion regulation. Um, and then let's say you have a personality profile that is um, low in neuroticism. You're low in emotion emotional dysregulation, you're high in openness to new new situations, you're high in extroversion, right? If this is the case, um, they those factors would serve as a buffer to your high biological predisposition to depression. So even though your, your biological predisposition might be, be strong, you're susceptible to it, having a robust sort of psychological profile, self-esteem, personality factors, temperament, um, beliefs about yourself, others in the world. You believe you're good. You believe you're lovable. You believe others are generally trustworthy. Um, you believe the world is generally safe. 
you believe that you're capable um, and and um, your actions are, are able to uh, alter the environment you're able to get the things you want done if you have those beliefs um, those are the types of beliefs that would buffer against the activation of your biological predisposition toward depression okay so let's keep going with this you have a biological predisposition toward depression but you've got a really robust um, psychological profile let's say now um, you're raised in we're going into the social dimension the third bubble the social dimension and these are the things that are sort of our environment things outside of us like how much social support do we have uh, do we have adequate access to nutrition right adequate food water shelter um, do we have quality relationships not just are we supportive but what's the quality of that support um, do we have um, a, a neighborhood where there's a significant threat of violence all the time do we live in a chronically stressful environment um, that would be those would be the social factors right so uh, what type of school did we go to did we go to a school where the education was robust and we're we're challenged did we go to a school where uh, we were bullied, we weren't intellectually challenged. Um, did we go to a school where the, it was like a pressure cooker for academics, highly competitive, right? What was our social environment? What was the environment we find ourselves in? How are we interacting with the world? What are the things in the world we're interacting with? Okay, let's say you've got, uh, you grew up in a pretty middle, like healthy middle class, nice neighborhood, uh, kids ride bikes, no risk of violence, um, you have adequate nutrition and access to good healthy foods adequate access to exercise and things like this good social support nice friends uh, your parents um, have a healthy stable marriage even though you've got a biological predisposition toward depression you've got a, a good solid robust psychology and uh, a relatively um, stress-free social environment might not be activated but think about now that we've got this Venn diagram of biopsychosocial, how those things might interact for a particular person to give rise to a mental illness. So you could have um, a very high risk for a mental illness, but be robust psychologically and socially, and you're fine. You could have a moderate risk now. Let's think about a moderate risk for, for a mental health issue. But let's say you have low self-esteem. Let's say you have a temperament that tends to be... Um, you react pretty strongly to new and novel situations. You don't like new and novel situations. You have a personality profile. Uh, you tend to struggle with emotion dysregulation. You are not open to new and novel situations. Your, your openness to new experience is low. You're, you're introverted. Um, let's say your beliefs about yourself, others in the world, you think that uh, you're not very capable of doing things. You think people aren't trustworthy. You think the world is unsafe that psychological profile might make you, uh, might sort of compound your biological predisposition. And then let's say you have a social factor, your grandmother dies, right? That single stressor, your grandmother dying, could activate, given your psychological profile, given your psychology, could activate that biological predisposition. Um, for people that are highly resilient, let's say you have a, you know, low biological risk factor, really robust psychological personality profile, uh, you might be able to experience a ton of social stressors, 
grandparents dying, parents getting divorced, growing up in a bad neighborhood, uh, you're bullied, you're picked on, you're in a really pressure cooker academic environment, and you might never have a mental health issue because you're so robust psychologically. Now, if you're, you're sort of less robust psychologically or if your biological predisposition is higher, less social strain or stress might kick off that biological predisposition. My point with all of this, and I hope you see it, is that mental illness arises for each particular individual at the nexus or intersection of their biological disposition, their psychological profile, and their social environmental um, stressors. We had an amazing opportunity to see this. See, most of us think that biology just bleed, you know, sort of projects upwards. And so if you're biologically predisposed, it's gonna come out in your psychology and then you're gonna express it in your environment. But it actually works in this interconnected way. Our, our environment can shape our psychology, which can activate and alter our biology. There's a whole field called epigenetics where we measure how our environment and our exposure to certain experiences actually alters our DNA, changes our biology, and it does. Um, but hopefully you, you, you see how this works. For, for a particular person, mental illness, mental health issues arise at this nexus, this middle between these three dimensions. So if we wanna look at just the biological dimension, we can use medications, right? But medications don't always change a person's psycholo psychological profile and it doesn't always change their social environment. And so what we see with this model is we see points of intervention. We can focus on somebody's uh, environment or, or social world. We can increase their social support, change the quality of their friendships, reduce the stressors in their environment, increase their access to exercise and good foods. And in doing so, we can reduce the stressors, which mean that means that even if they have a, a sort of fragile psychological profile, they're less likely to fall into depression or they can come out of a depression because we're altering, we're, we're reducing the stressor that's activating or triggering it, you know, that biological predisposition. Okay, so we wanna think about these things together. We saw this happen with um, Romanian orphans. After the fall of communism, these Romanian orphans had been uh, put in these orphanages as, as infants and they weren't given adequate food, exercise, love, attention, touch. Uh, they were raised in cages. They were, they were herded into groups where they would uh, use the restroom on the floor. I mean, there's just feces everywhere. It was horrifying conditions. And what we found is that these kids were at significantly higher risks for mental illness and mental health issues. They were less verbal. They had greater emotion dysregulation and behavioral problems, and they had lower IQs. Their environment impacted their psychological profile giving rise to mental health issues and mental illness. It was such a chronically stressful, deprived environment that almost all of them showed um, mental health issues and mental health problems. Um, that just shows how the force of, of a chronically stressful environment can have an effect even if you had a really low biological risk or pre predisposition. Now imagine if you didn't have, if you had a larger predisposition biologically, very little would be needed uh, for those children you know, to, to kick off with a mental health issue or a behavioral problem. Why is this important? This is important because moving forward as we address issues around spirituality, faith, and uh, psychology, mental illness and psychology, 
we have to be able to ask ourselves, um, what are we talking about? When we ask, when we say like, can prayer cure mental illness? Well, it's like the wrong question, right? The question is something like, what's the quality of that prayer? If prayer is a conversation with God, it's a relationship. We have to ask, um, toxic relationships can be stressors that activate mental health problems. So if I have a really toxic relationship with God, if I view God as judgmental, uh, demanding, he's got his finger on the smite button, he thinks I'm radically unworthy, I have to constantly impress him, um, I can't be open, honest, and, and I can't trust God. That type of, that view of God, sort of psychologically, my beliefs about God could dispose me further to a mood disturbance, anxiety, depression, etc. How I interact with God and how I interpret God interacting with me could absolutely lead to mood disturbances, anxiety, depression, etc. So the question isn't just like, can prayer cure mental illness or something like that? The question really is, what's the quality of that? And is that a social dimension or a psychological dimension? Because depending on where it falls and what we're talking about, it can dispose us or further dispose us to mental health issues. Um, it can be a stressor. My relationship with God can be a, stre a stressor. How I think about God can dispose me toward interpreting and viewing things in my life in a way that um, makes me more anxious or more depressed. So we need to really um, appreciate this biopsychosocial model if we're going to talk about these future questions with some nuance and clarity. So I hope that's helpful. I hope you appreciated it and enjoyed it. And I look forward to answering some more of your questions. Again, askacatholictherapist at gmail.com. And we'll see you next week.